Welcome, this is Lisa, where we go inside addiction to raise your level of consciousness. So today on the podcast we have Rob Kelly and we're going to talk about Rob's direct, no-nonsense and candid approach to recovery, his three core concepts that keep most addicts and alcoholics rooted in their disease, and how he was born into a family that had a history of alcoholism and he began drinking and using drugs. Uh, at an early age but he got his PhD and now helps others I'm also going to cover lots lots more but before we get into the show I want to say a big thanks to our audience for listening and I want to let you know that you can take the next step on your journey by downloading my free ebook you can learn seven practical tools to build a solid mental foundation to get your drink and drug use under control just go to insideaddiction.co.uk forward slash foundation now on to the show Welcome, Rob. It's great to have you on the podcast. Thank you, Luke. It's good to be here. Yeah, it's going to be a good one. Awesome. To kick us off, I just wondered if you could let us know what advice would you give to the version of yourself still stuck in the madness of drinking or using drugs, and where were you at the time, and what was going on for you? Homeless at the time, uh, but you know, it takes what it takes is what I found in the med- with mental illness, addiction, and alcoholism is, you know, I had to go through what I had to go through before I realised. So, uh, started drinking at the age of nine, but it wasn't until I spent the year on the streets that I realised I had a drink problem. Because nobody was talking about it when I was uh, back in the 80s. No one was talking about alcoholism and addiction. And especially no one was talking about mental health. And that's only the last five or ten years that people have been calling it mental health. So, uh, my advice I've given myself is just stick in there, it's going to be okay. In the end, thank God. Yeah, yeah. And what was that sort of picture like when you were in your early childhood growing up and your journey into drinking? What does that picture look like? You know, from the outside, it looked pretty good, to be honest. It was only in the inside. So I was thrown on the stage with a musical family. And uh, at the age of nine is when I saw my first drink. Just because of nerves. Very nervous as a child. Played a venue in Liverpool, which is... Uh, Packed, there's about a thousand people in there and I freaked out. So they gave me, my uncle gave me a beer and it seemed to have sort all my problems out. And I remember drinking it thinking, this is going to be the solution for the rest of my life because it was awesome. And then as I went on, uh, as a musician, before I went to college, it gave me lots and lots of uh, courage. And, and, and fear was dropped when I drank. I had no fear about nothing. So I have accomplished quite a bit in my life because of the drinking, to be honest. Yeah. And when did you sort to, sort of start to think about drinking becoming a problem? When did you start to notice sort of the consequences and what was happening? Probably after my first marriage. I realised I was drinking too much. Uh, I had two children at the time, two youngsters. And it all started to go wrong after the second child was born. I was, uh, by this time, I was going into blackouts. Not for hours or days, I was going into blackouts for weeks. I won't remember what I was doing. We'd be driving around and, you know, flying all over the place and spending lots of money and the violence got worse and he just went down real quick. So when it finally came, when it finally came for me at the end, the alcoholism, it took me to the, it, I became homeless very quickly, probably six months. And then I was on the streets thinking, where did it all go wrong? But by then, obviously, it was too late. Everything had gone. Kids, wives, cars, houses, everything you can imagine had gone. Yeah. 
And when you say it all gone, what was that process like losing everything? I mean, were you aware of it? Were you just drinking? How was that process? You know, I was kind of aware of it, but I didn't really care. But I lived in a million dollar house, drove for Porsche 911s, uh, had a half a million dollars in cash in the house, business was good. But, um, you know, slowly but surely, it just took a drain on me. I never thought it'd be as bad as it was. I never thought I'd be homeless living on the streets, living in bus shelters. Never thought that would happen because I have a family and I have too many friends and I have a lot of money. So, well, you know, as a doctor, you tend to earn a lot of money. So between two fifty and half a million dollars a year is what I was earning. But I lost everything. You know, I got a license taken off me. And, Medical license taken off me, and it was just horrendous. In the end, it was just it was pure poverty. You know, everyone has abandoned me. Everybody walks away from me. My wife, my mom and dad, uh, my kids won't speak to me. The youngest one still doesn't speak to me. Twenty-seven years on, so it's just a price to, to pay, really, for for just you know the disease. And what does it feel like to be sitting with that price and paying it even to this day? The pain is still there because of what I did to my kids and my, and my ex-wife. I stabbed my wife three times one night because she wouldn't let me drink. So that's always hard to get over. And uh, I did a lot of things with the kids. I left them in dangerous places while I went to get drugs and drink. So, I mean, I work at the 12-step program today, which kind of makes me deal with the past. And only because of that do I, do I succeed today about getting through the day without thinking of all the shit I used to do. Yeah. And what does addiction mean to you? Addiction is vicious. Addiction is the only illness that tells you you haven't got it. It's the only self-diagnosed illness in the world, alcoholism. And um, if you think you've got it, you better seek trouble, seek help, because you're in a bunch of trouble. People don't know this. You know, as soon as you start drinking, from heavy drinking to alcoholic drinking, there's a big danger there. Most people die. It's a killer. Kills more people than cancer and heart disease put together. Yeah. And, you know, I take clients for a 12-week program around recovery and I will send them these episodes. And I'd love for you to give our audience some practical tips they can use to get their drink and drug use under control. Where do you advise people to go? What do you advise them to do? You know, if, if you're in trouble at all, just look. If you look at the website, we, we, if we can't help you with it, we'll, we'll send you somebody who can. We have offices in Dallas, San Antonio, Zurich, Spain, Manchester, London. So just go to our website, robkelly.com, R-O-B-B-K-E-L-Y.com, and we'll give you resources. We'll point you in the right direction. And on there, you'll find phone numbers that you can call. I'm not going to cost you anything. And just chat with us about how we can help you. That's the main thing. How can we help you? Yeah. And what were some of the things that personally helped you as you were, went from kind of the madness to where you are today? Well, first of all, they let me stay at his house because he found me on the streets. So I went back to his house and he said I could uh, shower and give him some clothes. And then I decided to go to 12-step meetings, and then my life took off from there. It just got better and better and better. Yeah. And what was your first kind of experience with sort of 12-step meetings going into the first few? How did you find it? And what was that rock-bottom moment like before that? <laughs> rock-bottom is horrible. 
you know. And a lot of people think you have to be on the streets to be rock bottom. You don't. You can have a rock bottom, you're still at work, you've still got your wife. It's just a mental exhaustion of chasing that feeling of the first drink over and over and over again. So sooner or later, you'll find yourself up in, in, in uh, 12-step rooms. And at first, you might not think you belong. And then you might not think it's for you. But sooner or later, you'll realize it is. And it's not as embarrassing as you think it is. And that probably most of your neighbors go there. Yeah. And when you sort of started in early recovery, you were going to those first few meetings. Was there any one person or mentor that helped you in your recovery? Yeah, there was a guy called John that helped me. And uh, he took me through the book. He took me through the steps. And uh, he stayed with me for a long time. I've had various sponsors over the years, but he was the one where it stuck for me. So he helped me. And uh, like I say, my life just gets better on a daily basis. Yeah, and what were some of the things he helped you with or some of the shifts that really happened in early recovery for you? Well, the first thing he did is tell me that I wasn't on my own, that there were other people like me because I thought I was the only one. Secondly, he told me, this is back in the 80s, before the World Health Organization said it was a disease, he told me it was my fault, that I had a terminal illness for which there's no cure. He said that what we can have is a daily reprieve and he explained it to me that you know, we've got one day at a time which we can live. And that's how I live my life today. Not, It's not I'm not drinking today, it's like I'm going to live today. You know, the next 24 hours I'm going to live as if it was my last day on earth. And it's the only way, my opinion, to live life because it's, life is too precious. I always say to people, I went to bed last night and I was 29. I woke up this morning and I was 59. It's like the years go so fast that you just take it for granted and we've got to stop doing that. And what are some of the practices you do in the here and now to focus on that gratitude and that presence of the here and now? Well, I'm, I'm a spiritual guy, so I pray to, pray to the uh, universe. And then I compliment three people every day. I call my sponsor and I speak to my sponsors. And of course, I'm a doctor and I'm an addiction doctor, so I also get to work with people with problems in alcohol, drugs, bipolar, depression. Uh, so I just, as long as I keep doing what I'm doing in that arena, looking after myself, treat myself kind, as well as working with others, I think everything's going to be okay. Yeah, and like you say, 12 Steps was a big part of your recovery going through. Did you go through the actual steps as well with a sponsor? Was that part of your recovery? Yeah, it was. I went through the steps. Um, I read the book first to get a full knowledge of my condition and went through the steps and it stuck for me, you know, it really did. I mean, I live by the 12 steps today. I think they're very good. I think it should be used in every day. We have soft, not just, you know, the 12 step meetings, but anybody can read that book and just benefit from it. Yeah. And when you think about, yeah, your recovery and the tools and stuff you use as well as the 12 steps, what were some of the key moments or lessons or things that you learned along the way? One of them is stop being in fear of everything. Secondly is, if you think you're an alcoholic and you're struggling and you think that this is your lot in life, it's not. You know, this is a teaching period. I truly believe that alcoholics and addicts that come through the other side are special people. We're empowered. Empowered people empower people. So that's what we're brought through. Those that survive are always going to help other people, and those those who don't, they die. 
And unfortunately, the success rate of people surviving now is very few in the, in the normal world. Our percentage rate is 97%, but most treatment centers in America are about 5%. So we're, we're not in it for the money, we're in it for the passion, we want to help, genuinely help people, and we just want to take them to the next stage of life. Yeah, and when you say like the success rate of you know rehabs in the industry is quite low, how do you sort of see that and what are some of the problems you see in the industry or some of the things from people in early recovery to watch out for? I've seen people going back to the same rehab six or seven times, so that, there's alarm bells going off there, there's something not happening or something not wrong and I hear of the treatment centres that maybe they're just not ready or well, stop taking the money. Send them away until they are ready and then take them in and do what you do. We're the only company in the world that offers a money-back guarantee if you relapse. That's my buy-in. So I've seen these people relapsing and relapse time and time and time again. I was just sick of it. That's why I created my company. You know, we have staff that want to come to work in the morning. We have staff that's been through, every one of them has recovered alcoholics or addicts, who's been through the stuff that people are going through. So the identification is there as soon as you walk in. If you go to the places and the reps are like drinking night time and you swap from job to job, they've got no passion in it, they don't care. The treatment centres, there's no money in recovery. There's money in being sick and, and keep going in treatment centres, but there's no money in recovery. Because once you've recovered, you're done. It's like, why would you go back to the treatment centre when, you, when you're doing pretty good? So the whole thing annoys me, to be honest. And we don't affiliate ourselves with any treatment centre, we don't like them. There's, there's about five of them in our books. And that's all we'll deal with, but within the industry as a whole, needs a big shake-up because there's a lot of cowboys in there and there's a lot of people stealing a lot of money off the government with the insurance. It's about time it stops. And do you feel like there's any intersection between kind of medication and addiction at all? I do at the beginning. I'm a big believer that, you know, if you're coming off heroin, you know, then you obviously can go and suboxone for, for a month. But then at the end of the day, you need to come off it. Now, I'm not talking about antidepressants. I'm not talking about depression, bipolar. I'm talking about heroin and drugs and alcohol. You can come off there. Like if you, if you came off alcohol, they'll get, I don't mind giving people Librium, but only for a period of time. If you're on Suboxone six months into your withdrawal of heroin, you're not clean because your brain can't tell the difference between heroin and Suboxone. So don't be kidding yourself that you're clean. It will help you get off. You've got to put a month on it. Two months max to get off that stuff. And that's, that's, what, that's the problem we have. A lot of people come to well, I'm clean, I'm just taking Suboxone. Suboxone's not good. Yeah, but it may become heroin. That might be the case. And good for you. But you're still relying on Suboxone now. Well, you should be clean, completely clean and sober. You know, anything as an alcoholic addict that makes me think differently, act differently, feel differently, it's not good for me. So moderation, coffee even, has got to be moderate. Cigarettes, you've got to look at that. You've got to look at coffee, you've got to look at uh, sports drinks. You know, all these things change the way I think. So is it still an addiction and bad thing? I don't know, I'll let the listeners decide. And once you kind of got your drinking under control, how do you feel like your addiction, if you like, manifested from there? You mentioned like coffee, fags, that kind of stuff. Where, do you feel, where did things go for you? Nowhere. I was clean completely. I don't smoke. I don't drink. I take one cup of coffee a day and one cup of tea in the afternoon. So I moderate stuff when I can. And as long as I do my daily routine, which is getting up in the morning, I do my mirror work, which is looking myself in the mirror. 
and saying I love you ten times, that uh, that convinces the brain that you're worthy, that, that you you actually fit in, and that you're not worthless. So I do that every day. I do step ten, eleven, twelve on a daily basis, where I help people, you know, whatever I can. I compliment three people every single day, and then financially I'll buy somebody something, whatever it may be. If you're a one-parent family in recovery, I'll buy the children Christmas presents, birthday presents. I'll buy you presents. Yeah, because our foundation helps a lot of people every single year. So as long as I keep doing all that stuff and looking after other people and then maintain my own spirituality and maintain my own health, I think my, I think I'm in a good place. Yeah. And did all of that kind of happen for you at the same time um, when you started off in early recovery doing the 12 steps or was it a gradual process going from one drug to another? What did that look like for you? No, I think I was never a big drugie. I was never a big drug taker. Um, drugs didn't do anything for me. I took a bit of cocaine when I was at Abbey Road. I used to be the bass player at Abbey Road. So I played with Elton John, Queen, Howie. So when I was there, I took, I took cocaine, but I came straight off. I won't even take a headache tablet now unless it's absolutely necessary. I, I just don't, I don't really want to be on any drugs just in case it takes me back. Yeah, and what do you feel, or how do you feel like the brain um, I know you've studied the brain a lot. How do you feel like that intersects with addiction and our mind and drinking? How does that look like to you? Well, we look at alcoholism as a whole and it's hereditary, which means it goes back through generations. Very rarely do you find somebody who starts drinking and becomes an alcoholic. There's a big difference between alcoholism and heavy drinking. So we look at the hereditary, look at the, the disease being in the family, and you, as a child of your father, alcoholic, has a, you're at risk of becoming alcoholic. Now, it may skip, skip a generation, but what happens is I have self-sabotaging neural pathways, which leads to alcoholism. So I have the alcoholic brain before I'm born. So they're ingrained into the brain. That means that I go to every single time. I don't know what to do, where to go for, it's raining, it's sunny. Whatever reason I want to get away from myself, I turn to the alcohol every single time. So that with child trauma, which every time there's alcoholism, there's always child trauma, uh, remaps my brain. So the idea and the solution to all that is to remap the brain back for healthy thinking, healthy actions and behavior, but that's got to be done on a daily basis. It can't be left because what happens with the addicted brain if it's left for any more than 24 hours, especially up to 72 hours, it'll switch back to self-sabotage and that So you speak about the three core concept that's concepts that keep most addicts and alcoholics rooted in their disease. What are they and how do we kind of work on them? Well, we call it the 3D model because the three things is fear, abandonment and shame. So the fear, everybody's wrong by fear. They think they're not, but they are. If you've got the big muscle man, he says he's scared of nobody. He is. He's scared of little things, like his baby dying and going broke. You know, everybody's full of fear. So you need, you need to be looking at fear. Abandonment, every alcoholic has abandonment. It's just the way it is. It's like it goes back to being a child, and especially when we become alcoholic, uh, we isolate. So fear, terrible thing, abandon, and shame. The shameful, uh, you know, the shame that comes with alcoholism also needs to be attacked in a way that we need to go back and we need to uncover, discover, and discard all the stuff that's in our subconscious brain that's what we call flaws in our makeup. 
which will make you drink every single time. There'll be relapse after relapse after relapse. So you can go to a 90-day meeting, a 90-day drinking center, and you can stay in there for 90 days, and you can come out and relapse on the way home. Why is that? Because nothing in the head's changed. Your thought pattern is still the same. Because when you have a psychic change, and a psychic sounds or spiritual, it's not. It's psychic of the mind change, change of mind, and a spiritual awakening and a psychic change, your DNA changes. Why is that important? Because the same man will drink again. So actually you're not the same person when you finish the treatment or the 12 steps or the 90-day period as you was before. And it's important that we choose 90 days because that is the medical given time it takes for the brains to reset all chemicals in 90 days. So that's, that's our go-to every time is over a period of 90 days. All this can be done to make sure we remap the brain for an, an amazing life. Yeah, and what are some of the practical things you do to help your clients remap the brain and deal with the fear, abandonment and shame? Repetition, strengthen and confirmed every time. So we repeat using neuro-linguistic programming. So we're kind of talking to the subconscious brain while we're talking to people and we're lodging ideas in. We're lifting people up, we're showing people they can do whatever they want to do, we're making them confident, we're building their self-esteem up. Everything is planned in my offices from the moment you walk in to the second you walk out. So you might be starting with us, have no self-esteem, no confidence, nothing. You'll walk in, a nice girl come out, say hi, come eat your coffee, so you feel good about that. You sit down, she'll sit next to you, start talking. And this is if you have uh, abandonment issues or you can't speak to girls, she'll sit next to you. Because every, every program we do is, is individual. But she'll sit next to you and she'll talk to you. And then she'll bring you in and I'll spend some time with you and then you'll spend some more time with another girl. So by the time you leave, you'd feel pretty good about yourself. And that's what it's all about. I mean, hopefully over a period of time, you can go out into the real world and try it out and you'll have more confidence because everyone thinks they have confidence, but they don't really. You know, when you're on your own, it's very hard to have a lot of confidence to go and speak to girls or go for that job or, you know, think you're better than anyone else. And it's like, sometimes we have to put ourselves in a position where we do think that we can strive for almost success. And what are some of the ways you personally develop that inner confidence? It's, it's about relating to people. So, you know, if you get the, the, the guy that comes in that's messed everything up and his wife is thrown out and he's lost the kids, well, I can identify that because that's what happened to me. If you get a guy coming and he's lost his job or he's still got his job and he's still drinking, he's trying to hide it, I can identify that because that's me. So all these things I've been, been through, I can't identify with people. Once you start identifying with people, it goes back many, many years to what they used to call it a sales technique. They used to call it mirror, mirroring, which means that when somebody does something, you do exactly the same over a coffee to get your sales or business. So if he ordered toast, you ordered toast. If he ordered wine, you ordered wine. And it's kind of get that familiarity between you and all of a sudden you feel like your friends so you'll give the business to me rather than somebody else if it was a sales guy. It's the same thing in recovery. If I can identify with somebody else because I've already gone through it, then the trust is built in minutes that would take other doctors probably months to achieve, if they could. Yeah, and like you say, that's from that personal experience that you know, a lot of other doctors and professionals just don't have. Um, and that's insanely valuable in the industry to not only have the experience and the lived knowledge, but then the expertise on top of that. And you've, you have quite a direct and no-nonsense and candid approach to recovery. And you've been referred to as the Gordon Ramsay of recovery. And 
what are your thoughts on that and your kind of approach? I'm very aggressive when it comes to the disease. I curse a lot when it comes to the disease. You know, I just, I'm, I'm, we have to separate the disease from the person because the person is usually very nice, such a great guy. Because how many times guys have heard when he doesn't drink, he's such an amazing guy. That's, the, that's because we have the alcoholic side of us and we have the real side of us. So when I scream and shout at you, which is not for everybody, I'm attacking the disease and I'm seeing what the disease is going to come back with. Is it going to come back with anger? Is it going to come back with violence? Is it going to just take my notice and open up and let me see exactly what's going on? Because one of the reasons that we only do online telehealth now is because when you come to my office and sat there with your best jeans on and your button-up shirt and you have a shower and, you know, you're all sterile. Whereas when we do telehealth, we come straight into your house, you can sit there with your pajamas on, you know, and, and so I can get into your head a lot quicker and, and it seems to work for us. And what is the most worthwhile investment you've made in your life? And it could be an investment of money, time, energy, or other resource. And how did you make the decision to make that investment? I think investing in me with time. I think investing with me as uh, the little things that, you know, when we get busy, we kind of neglect. So my assistant on my calendar, because I'm a musician, I have a music room in the house, which is full of guitars and drums and, and organs and stuff. So one hour a week, I'm actually booked to go in there. And it's funny because I'm in my own house and she go, okay, music room from 10 to 11. So I'll go in there. So I'll make, I, mean, I go out my way to make sure that I'm kind to myself because I burnt out once and they had to send me to uh, a uh, PTSD hospital for, for a period of six weeks. So I don't want to, that was only five years ago, I don't want to repeat that. And that was all because I'm helping other people, but forgot to help me. So investment in myself and, and, and care, self-care is, is, what, is what would be the answer for that. And do you have like a quote that you live your life by or that you think of often? I live my life by, I, I do to others like I want them to do to me. I trust everybody and I believe everybody until you give me a reason not to. Because I get people all the time, so oh, don't be careful, I don't trust him. It's like, no, I don't believe in that. You know, when I was on the streets, nobody trusted me. And yet, look at me now. I'm one of the best minds in the modern addiction world. But everyone's spitting on me and stepping over me on the streets. So you don't, you don't know who you're talking to. You know, you, I mean, I've met scientists on the streets, I've met electricians on the streets. You know, it can happen to anybody. So. I just want to be kind to all people and give them a chance and keep my feet on the ground. And like you say, that self-kindness is important and kindness to others and giving from your overflow. And like you say, you learn that lesson when you burn out, that giving to everyone else without first giving to yourself, you run out of resources in a sense. And what was that like for you, that kind of burnout period of, you know, helping everyone else? It was, it was horrible because I didn't know what was happening. Uh, because of the work we do, it's very important that our, that our full roster is five patients. Well, we had 10 patients on, so it was double our roster, so I was working twice as long. And uh, I, I just broke down one, one day, and my wife came in, and she says, we need to get you to hospital. So they got me a plane, and we flew over to Phoenix, Arizona, and I stayed there for five weeks. But it was just mental exhaustion and every time you work with somebody you take a piece of them away and they take a piece of your way 
So you've got to be careful that you have the boundaries up. Boundaries are very important. And that you really know that the, the work you are doing is important. But most importantly, if you don't keep yourself aligned, you can't do it. So it goes back to the old you know, story that I hear every time is when you're on an airplane and they're telling you about the mask, what the first thing they tell you to do well, they tell you to put on yourself before you look at anybody else. And that's what I do today. I put my own mask on first and then I look around to see who else I can help with their mask. And what does your life look like now if you were to kind of paint us the dream of a day in your life? I live in a million dollar house in Texas. I have a pool to die for. I have music rooms, I have um, playrooms, I have four English bulldogs, I have two cats, a beautiful wife, three fish. I drive a Mercedes McLaren, my wife drives a Range Rover with a Rolex swatches. I have a million dollars in cash in a bank. I have $10 million as an investment for my future retirement in five years' time. Life's pretty good today, you know, but I never forget where I came from. And, you know, at nighttime, 9, 11 o'clock at night, I go to bed and we get a call of somebody, a sponsor. Not even a paying patient sponsor and says they need help, I'm there for you all the time. You see, all this can go tomorrow, I don't care. You know, as long as I'm happy, and I'm happy today. You know, so all the material things are nice. They're nice to have, don't get me wrong, I love it. If they went tomorrow, it made no difference because I'm happy today, and I'm happy every single day. And I'm happy, joyous, and free, which I just hated them three words when I first came around, but I am. And I do a lot of TV. You know, I have a book out there, Daddy, Daddy, Please Stop Drinking, was the last thing my eldest daughter said to me 27 years ago when the authorities took her off me. And that's selling well, you know, and uh, I'm just I'm just flying high right now, enjoying life. Yeah, awesome. It sounds awesome. And like you say, that balance between enjoying the success and the hard work and the, the result of the spiritual work as well, but also keeping your finger on the pulse and helping people and like you say still picking up that phone uh in the night but also staying boundary as well and like you say you've got your book out there you're helping people on podcasts on tv and is there any other valuable resources you want to share with anyone um, on the internet or any stuff or direction you want to point the audience in well, if you're struggling or you want to, you know, sort of help or conversations or email, jump on the website, robbkeloy.com, we'll speak to you, I'm not going to cost you anything, we're only here to help, just have a 15 minute chat, we'll give you no problems at all, redirect you, and of course, we're on Facebook, Dr. Rob Kelly, I'm on all the platforms, just search my name on Google, guys, you'll see all what I do, and what I mentioned in the book is only on Amazon, Daddy, Daddy, please stop, we're drinking by Dr. Rob Kelly, all the proceeds, not the profits, but all the proceeds go back into Manchester, go back into London, go back into Texas, go back into people that are struggling with this disease. You have to be a one-parent family with children, and you must be in recovery. And we donated or helped around two hundred and fifty thousand dollars last year of uh, of helping people in the community and giving them a leg up and a step up, so they have a life beyond the wildest dreams. And I just love doing that. Absolutely love it. Yeah, awesome. And is there any advice you'd give to anyone out there who's struggling with addiction, who's just kind of waiting to take that step? What advice would you give them? Dialogue is the most important thing. If you think you have a drink problem, you probably have a drink problem or a drug problem. If you ask someone, do you think I have a drug problem, you definitely have a drug problem. So just bear that in mind and start dialogue with somebody. You know, it could be your parents, it could be your wife, it could be your girlfriend, boyfriend, best friend. Just start something and say, hey, 
You know, I think I've got a problem with, with drugs or alcohol. It's always best to go and find out if you are. Go to a 12-step meeting, you know, go, go and speak to, to some of these guys about experience because you just might be a heavy drinker or a heavy user. And believe me, that will go in time. So a period of time, you just don't want to make sure you want to cross over to the bad side, which is alcoholism and full-blown addiction because it will destroy you and it will kill you and it will destroy your family or your parents. Simple as that. So talk to somebody. Start dialogue. You know, I'll, I, I always say this. Everyone said to me, like, oh, alcoholism and addiction, oh, my God, it must be just a curse. It's a freaking superpower is what it is. So get help. Get over it. Get to help other people. Start your life and don't fear nothing on nobody. And stop making practical decisions based on fear. If you want that job, go and get it. If you want that girl, go and get her. You know, this is the sober, clean life that we lead. Don't get clean and sober to do the same old shit over and over again, guys. It's not worth it. Go drinking. Go use it. You're not achieving anything. You know, don't stick in AA and NA meet all day long. Go home and see your family. You know, the big book says that we have one meeting a week. That's all. It's not getting your life back. It's not living your life to the wildest dreams. Look at me from homelessness to here. Are you kidding me? It's virtually impossible, but it's possible. And if I can do it, you can do it. Awesome, awesome. And you mentioned about the superpower of recovery. What are some of the ways you've used that superpower? I inspire people when I walk in a room. I'll, I'll stop and, and speak to a homeless guy. You know, I'll encourage board members to get a better life, businessmen, tradesmen, you know, unemployed. It doesn't matter where you are, it's just that you've always got a kind word to say to somebody. That's the most important thing. So having this superpower because you you look amazing, you sound amazing, you have so much confidence, you're never tired because alcoholism and addiction tires you and you're just full of energy and you want to go out and just give this to other people because one kind word can change somebody's life. End of story. Yeah, well, thanks. Uh, before we come to an end, is there anything else you wanted to share with the audience or anything else on your mind? No, just an uh, awesome interview. Loved every minute. And uh, I will uh, I'll look forward, if you jump on the website, uh, there's an email there. If you want to speak to me, guys, just text, just email it in and just say to Dr. Rob, and my staff will give it to me and we'll start dialogue between us. So, you know, if you're at home now and you're thinking your son or your daughter, your wife, your husband, did they have a problem? Or if you're brave enough and you know you've got a problem, why don't you email me and we'll start dialogue going. Let's see if I can help you. Uh, which is that. And the other thing is that's really worth it is everything does turn around, guys. Everything does get better. My daughter, that was that she was taken off at age three, is now 27. And she works for me. And she's in our Manchester office. So although I'm in the USA, guys, we have two offices in the UK, Manchester and London. So if you need help, email me. I'll give you their personal cell phone numbers and you can chat and put your mind at peace. Awesome. Well, thanks very much, Rob, for coming on the podcast. It's been amazing. Thanks. Very. It's, uh, it's weird because you answer some questions that nobody's asked before, which is really refreshing. Because I've done thousands and thousands of these and TV interviews. But yeah, so the questions were awesome. So I'm looking forward to this air and it should be good. Thank you so much, Luke. You're no, awesome. Thanks very much. And thanks to our audience for listening. And do remember to subscribe on iTunes. We have new episodes weekly every Friday.